This is the Scott Thompson Show podcast. What happened over the weekend, and I'm sure I'm, I'm sure you've all witnessed it, uh, watching global news or wherever, and however you consume your uh, your news. Uh, scary things happening in Charlottesville, Virginia, this weekend, and you know I'm thinking, you know, it's 2017. We seem more divided now. Uh, than we do or as we did uh, during the race riots of the 1960s. Let's bring in Jackson Proskow, Washington Bureau Chief, Global News, and is with us now. Hello, Jackson. How are you? Hey, good to be with you. Thank you for taking the time, Jackson. How has this gripped the United States? It, it almost seems that it's just another tool of divisiveness, that it's just something else to divide. Everyone's got a different, a different take, a different opinion on this. Yeah, but I think there is a bit of consensus here, and whether it's from supporters of Donald Trump or opponents of Donald Trump, there's consensus that the silence at the top is absolutely deafening. It's sort of this bizarre question of why won't he say those words, white supremacy or KKK? Why won't he specifically name uh, the groups uh, that were involved in this? Uh, That's a bizarre question to have to ask in 2017 of an American president. Why is the case? What are people, what is, how are people answering this question? Nobody seems to have an answer. I mean, there's some suspicions that uh, perhaps uh, he doesn't want to alienate a group of supporters or part of his constituency. Uh, that's that's pure speculation at this point. Um, there's some speculation, I guess, that he's just getting bad advice from those close to him. But it's strange when you look at the fact that the vice president, for example, his own daughter, for example, the attorney general, for example, have all named these groups by their names. Uh, You talked about bad advice. Uh, Would the name Steve Bannon be in that uh, conversation? Well, it certainly is. Uh, And, you know, you've got a lot of uh, civil rights watchers still to this day wondering what a person with Steve Bannon's track record is doing in the White House as a senior advisor to the president. I mean, that's that's a very serious question in all of this. So what is the buzz in America? What, are people blaming Donald Trump for this? Or are, they, are they blaming him for inciting such hatred from bringing it back out into public uh, discourse, I guess? Well, some people certainly are. I mean, when you consider the fact that you had David Duke, the former leader of the KKK, marching on Saturday in Charlottesville saying, quote, we're going to fulfill the promises of Donald Trump, uh, you have to think that speaks to the motivation of some of the people in that crowd, even the mother of the suspect uh, um, uh, in that vehicle attack, the mother of James Alex Fields, said she thought her son was going to a rally that had something to do with Trump. So you can't pretend that the connection doesn't exist, I think, is the point that's being made right now. Uh, and that's why the calls are uh, growing louder for the president to speak up and why there's so much confusion about why the president hasn't spoken up. I mean, uh, think about the fact that you had uh, the African-American CEO of Merrick Pharmaceuticals, this is a huge drug company who sat on an advisory board to the president today resigning from that advisory board saying he feels it's uh, you know he needs to stand up to bigotry and racism uh, sort of taking a shot at the fact that the president hasn't stood up to that and within 54 minutes of that statement the president was lashing out at that ceo by name on twitter hmm. yet still hasn't lashed out at the white supremacists and the kkk who were involved in the uh, events of saturday uh for a different perspective this was a clip that was on with bill kelly uh this morning joe thomas was on he's a morning talk show host at wchv in charlottesville listen to this this is going back long before donald trump was anything more than a casino owner and uh, builder uh, and this goes back before The Apprentice was even on TV. So to blame this on Donald Trump is ludicrous. Uh, what what Donald Trump said was evil is wrong in all incarnations, and I challenge anyone to tell me that that's an inaccurate statement. Uh, you, we, I was in the middle of it. There was lots of violence coming from both sides. 
Uh, so when he says there was violence on both sides, he's right. What are your thoughts, Jackson? I mean, wow, how do you balance this stuff? It's, it's an incredibly difficult question to ask, but I think... Um, you know, that kind of commentary ignores the fact that uh, you even have the FBI and Department of Homeland Security in May this year putting out a bulletin to the White House warning about the rise in attacks by what they call uh, white supremacist extremist groups. In other words, this is a, a real factor that's out there, and the president still has not addressed it. I think it's also worth pointing out that, for example, President Trump was heavily critical of President Obama. He said, you know, President Obama failed to use words like radical Islamic terrorism and sort of insinuated that you can't address a problem if you won't name it. Well, here's a problem that's real and documented and that uh, U.S. government agencies are pointing out, and so far the president has refused to name it. Uh, you talked about uh, Ivanka Trump and her statement on uh, Twitter. How can one be so different from the other? Is the, Does he sort of use her as, you know, the calming force? Okay, you put out something like this. I'll, I'll, I'll you know, I'll uh, focus on the base. Do you think that much thought gets put into this, or is she just putting out the fires he's setting? Well, I mean, there, there is sort of a track record this White House of putting out, with this White House of putting out fires. Uh, y- you know, you have the Attorney General this morning using words like white supremacist and KKK and saying, well, the President did address this, you know. Uh, they're justifying it as the President spoke broadly in the clip that you just played, and then an unnamed White House spokesperson came out 24 hours later and named those groups specifically. Uh, but there's a real disconnect there, and I guess the question that's being asked is, why does this happen time and time again, that the president sort of has to be pushed to specifically address or condemn these groups? Uh, and how do you explain or, or even think that, you know, uh, David Duke is now uh, in the media as a news clip, as, as some sort of authority on this? I mean, I thought we had heard the last of this guy. Yeah, I mean, I think it gives you a sense of just where politics are at in this country right now. It's an incredibly uh, divisive time, and I think there are some groups and some people who feel that they have an opportunity to be heard right now and not necessarily pushed immediately off to the fringes. I think that sort of uh, plays to what's going on right now. Uh, I, I was thinking this morning when I was doing my commentary on this, it almost seems as if we're moving backwards. Uh, would they view it as moving backwards or finally getting a hold of, I don't know, I guess white supremacy? Uh, how, how do we not view this as, as having fought these battles decades before? Yeah, I mean, I think that's that's kind of the point here is that uh, I think a lot of Americans, perhaps, and Canadians as well, assume that these battles were long in the past. And this is really making the point that, no, the fight is far from over for equality and recognition, and the fight against bigotry in general is far from over. Again, when you have David Duke coming out there on Saturday saying, we are going to fulfill the promises of Donald Trump, that's a pretty specific interpretation of what he feels the president is offering to him. Uh, are all of these people as supportive? Uh, some have said that Donald Trump has done uh, a good job of alienating himself from all of them. He's offending all of them in some form or another. Yeah, I think, it's, I think the, the, the point here is that it's all interpretive, right? It's people are reading into Trump's statements what they want. He's left just enough ambiguity there in what he has said by, for example, blaming all sides. That if you look at the messages being posted on white supremacist forums, for example, they're sort of saying, 
oh, this wasn't so bad. He didn't condemn us specifically. Uh, instead, is trying to spread the blame around. And I think that's the point that a lot of critics are ma- making, is that there is no room for ambiguity in all this. Right. Uh, I should just point out, we've just received word that the president is actually about to make a statement at the White House here any moment. So we'll see, uh, perhaps, if he offers some of that specific- specificity or clarity here that uh, a lot of people have been looking for. Is that too little too late? Um, does he? What does he have to do? What does he have to say now? Well, I think he needs to say those words and name those groups specifically. That's what people are looking for. The sort of uh, forgiveness factor in the age of 24-hour news and social, social media is that first impressions perhaps matter less than they once did, and the president has a chance to rectify something that happened on a summer weekend on a Monday when a few more people are paying attention. But the expectations for him to say something very direct and very specific are going to be very high. The fact that he was slow to say if he says something more positive this time out as you're, as you're waiting for, uh, will people view that as too little too late? Absolutely. I mean, uh, you've already, again, as I mentioned, had that uh, CEO of Merck Pharmaceuticals resign in protest over the president's failure to address this from the outset. And again, Scott, I think just to make your point about uh, day and age that we're in, I think there's just general... Uh, generally a sense of why is it 2017 and we're having to ask the question uh, as to why it's taking days for the president to speak about this. Well, I think, Jackson, it's simply because, in my own personal opinion, Don, uh, Donald Trump manages through confusion. I mean, that's a, uh, that's a business strategy for him. Um, in this case, and lots have said that when these little fires break out, uh, that they're a, str- a distraction from bigger things. Uh, do you think that's what happened in this case, that it's a distraction? Or once again, he's just shooting from the hip without thinking before he's tweeting? You know, it's really not clear. So, for example, on Saturday when he made his uh, uh, original statement, uh, it seemed as though the words he were reading were prepared, except when he lumped in that comment about the blame is to go around on many, many sides. That part seemed to be ad-libbed, as as Trump so often does. Uh, So it's really not clear if there was a messaging strategy there or not, or, uh, you know, Trump was simply speaking in words he felt comfortable with. Uh, But one way or another, we're sort of on repeat here. This seems to be a cycle that repeats itself anytime there is something to do um, with, with race in this country. Uh, what about Anthony Scaramucci? Uh, why are we still hearing from him? It seems we're hearing from him long after, well, certainly longer than the duration he spent you know, in, in the job. Uh, surprised at his reaction to all of this over the weekend? Well, he is just sort of starting to make the rounds now after his, uh, what was it, 72 hours of infamy inside the White House. Um, you know, I don't think it's a surprise that we're hearing from him. And I think he is saying publicly what a lot of White House advisors are thinking privately, which is, you know, the president needs to take a stronger tone on this and, again, remove any room for interpretation or ambiguity here. Make it really clear what he's thinking on this matter. So is he being advised not to? Why wouldn't you? Isn't that just the human response? Yeah, we don't which know. Would, which would suggest that someone's telling him not to and that that may be Steve Bannon. It either suggests that someone's telling him not to or that he is personally, for whatever reason, afraid of alienating a group of people who have publicly declared their support for him. I mean, keep in mind that his uh, support or his approval ratings right now are in that 36 to 38 percent range, depending on the poll you look at. That's pretty abysmal. Uh, and yet, uh, you know, he is afraid to, to sort of speak out and perhaps jeopardize uh, what he feels is support from these groups. So it's, it's kind of a strange play, but you do have to think that uh, even if he did uh, publicly come out, and maybe he will here in a few minutes when he speaks, if he comes out and condemns these groups, 
I don't think their support's going anywhere else. I mean, they're not going to turn around and start voting Democrat. It's kind of a, a zero-sum mm. game here. Just come out and condemn this group. I don't think there are many people on the sides of white supremacy uh, in 2017. How do you think the world is viewing this? Is this an American problem? It's an American problem, but I think a lot of people view this with a great deal of confusion. Again, why the president wouldn't come out and say something that is so glaringly obvious in the eyes of so many people. Uh, should we put any weight into what Ivanka did say and what she did tweet, and that being that there's no room for racism? You know, there's been a lot of back and forth uh, on this idea of how much sway Ivanka Trump holds within the White House. And even she has come out recently and sort of tried to publicly tamp down expectations of what she can do and what kind of influence she might have over her father. So I, I wouldn't read too much uh, into that other than that being her own words. Uh, just as the Attorney General, for example, this morning uh, was telling network television stations that the president should probably come out and publicly name these groups. Uh, is Steve, do you think, or are you hearing word that Steve Bannon's time in the White House is limited? There's certainly been rumblings about that, but then again, there have been rumblings about that for mm, uh, a know, while. Sort of the last four months, right? It's kind of, these rumors sort of ebb and flow uh, with all these various figures inside the White House. Are they staying? Are they going? Uh, the rumors about Sean Spicer started three, four months before uh, his eventual ouster. What about just the different view that he has, meaning Donald Trump has on, on, on issues, whether it's this, that, the other, uh, than his staff will have, or, or even his vice president, you know, and, and other members of, of Congress and such saying things on how he should react? Is he not listening to any of that? Well, it depends how much history reading you do about Donald Trump. I mean, you don't get the sense that he's the type of person who uh, likes taking advice from those near him. Uh, but he's also the type of person, and uh, you could even glean this as silly as it sounds from watching The Apprentice, but he likes that sort of adversarial tone around him. In other yeah. words, that's why he had Reince Priebus and Steve Bannon both as his number two diametrically opposed characters, but he likes that internal conflict and chaos and sort of likes to see how ideas and plans shake out. Uh, Do you think he will ever realize that that may work on a TV show, but not necessarily when you're governing people? You know, that's that's really hard to say. Uh, I, I think... There were a lot of expectations uh, after Trump was elected that maybe he would change how he spoke or tone it down or uh, generally change his tone or moderate a little bit more, and we've seen that hasn't been the case. So Trump seems to be Trump, and there's a lot of, uh, a lot of school of thought among uh, his strategists that say, let Trump be Trump, let him be himself, let him be the person who carried himself to the White House. Uh, Jackson Prosco with us, Washington Bureau Chief, Global News. One last question, Jackson. Are supporters disappointed in him? I mean, we know he's got his base. It seems he can't do no wrong in their eyes. But are some that elected him going, you know, we were voting for change here and uh, all we got is confusion? Well, I think what you're starting to see is the base slowly erode away, but I use the term slowly. The majority of his base are, is still there. Uh, more than 70% of Republicans in the latest polls say they still support Trump. So the erosion is very slow. I think what you're going to see more of is a public break between congressional Republicans and establishment Republicans and this White House. Uh, the ouster of Reince Priebus was a good sign that sort of the longstanding traditional face of the Republican Party doesn't have much of a place inside this White House anymore. And events like those we've seen over the past weekend only serve to further uh, build that wedge between the party and the president, because I think if, if the party had a greater influence inside this White House, we wouldn't sort of see these constant fiascos over messages. And whether that's Mm. to do with race, whether that's to do with North Korea, whether that's to do with a whole bunch of issues, 
the point is the president isn't on message the way uh, the party itself would likely be if it had more of a, a chokehold on this White House. Jackson Proskow has been with us, Washington Bureau Chief, Global News. Watch Global News tonight to find out more. Jackson, as always, thank you for the time. Much appreciated. My pleasure. You're listening to The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on AM 900 CHML. You might remember last March, this was uh, a fascinating story coming out of uh, Ancaster. Uh, and, and you know, I, I guess you think that this sort of thing just doesn't go on in your presence, doesn't go on in your community. Um, and, you know, it kind of seems something more out of uh, a movie than it does uh, out of real life. Uh, but we certainly learned the uh, story of alleged Yahoo hacker uh, Karim Baratov. Uh, and his uh, lifestyle and he, how he seemed to be quite an affluent young businessman. And uh, in the Internet business, in the Internet world, uh, only to find out that uh, allegedly he's involved in the giant uh, Yahoo hack and, uh, of course, is wanted in the United States uh, on charges. Uh, uh, the others involved... Uh, spies for the Russians. They've headed back to uh, the motherland. And, of course, uh, Karim Baratov is the only one within the net that the U.S. uh, can grab. Uh, That being said, arrested back in March and, uh, I guess, uh, discussing extradition and what options are and has decided to uh, bypass the extradition hearing and now will go uh, directly to the states to uh, face these charges. So uh, I think one of the main main reasons for this is the time that you spend while you're waiting to fight these extradition charges doesn't count towards any sort of penalty that you may uh, encounter in the United States. So uh, I guess at the end, the smart thing is to just get on with it. Let's bring in Jordan Donick, criminal lawyer, uh, Donick Law, and is with us now. Hello, Jordan. How are you today? Uh, great, thanks. Uh, glad to be back. Thank you for taking the time. We appreciate this. Uh, why would we see this move now? I mean, obviously, this happened uh, initially arrested back in March. Why now? Well, we're seeing it now because Mr. Baratov has come to terms with his fate, essentially, that uh, there's nothing he can do, uh, nothing money can buy or change that would uh, that would delay this process. So why not get on with it? So would this be something that would take several months to arrive at? Is, what, what would that process be like? Would you be investigating to what the case would be like against you? That sort of thing. So a comparison can be with El Chapo. He was extradited from Mexico, if you recall. Um, so likely in the next couple of months, he'll be in this, on U.S. soil, uh, standing trial. So uh, does this mean that, uh, that Baratov and his lawyers knew that he would, he would be extradited anyway? There was no way he would win an extradition hearing? Correct. So um, that's likely what happened. He, he likely met with his lawyers, uh, went through all the evidence. By now they have some further disclosure of what he's dealing with, and they came to terms that there's nothing that can stop this process. So nothing can stop the process. What info would they have uh, in regard to the charges in the United States? How would they know how strong they are? What sort of a case is there? So it's quite likely U.S. authorities passed uh, some uh, substantial information to the RCMP, and that information was actually partially known at the bail hearing. Because if you recall, he was uh, denied bail mm-hmm. and as well as the appeal. So they do know quite a bit of information about the case already. So uh, what sort of discussions would be had between uh, Baratov and his lawyer over the last several months? 
Well, probably Beratov wants to get out of custody, right? We know that. He's been there, I think, since March. Uh, he's probably bored. Uh, nothing's happening. And if he ultimately wants to get out of custody, this is the only way. You have to confront the allegations head on. Hmm. So uh, will, he, will he know when he heads down? How prepared will he be for this case? Well, again, you said there was information already disclosed when the charges were laid. Uh, how prepared can they be heading into this? So th- there's going to be a couple issues. Uh, he likely will need a different lawyer. Uh, his, his lawyers here probably aren't licensed in the jurisdiction he's going to. So that's probably part of the process as well. He's now going to have to get U.S. counsel, in, and they will get full disclosure of the proceedings. Uh, and at that point, would his Canadian lawyer be out of it, out of the process? Quite likely, unless there's some reason to have a Canadian lawyer involved. Um, and I'm sure, I'm sure I can see the Canadian lawyer still being involved, given that uh, he was residing here and there's a lot of information here. He may cooperate uh, with the U.S. lawyer, but ultimately this will be in the hands of, uh, of a U.S. attorney. Uh, the fact that he, if he does cooperate, how much of an advantage uh, is that to him? You know, say he, you know, pull, pulls the mule defense that I didn't know what I was doing. I was just working, you know, doing the grunt work for these guys, blah, blah, blah. Uh, how, how much information can he give them uh, to help his own cause? So consenting to the extradition now isn't going to help his case at all. Mm-hmm. It's just going to start the wheels. Right. Um, whether he cooperates or admits some certain things in the actual proceeding will be something he's discussed with his lawyer. But what's scary with these situations, with co-accused situations that are international, uh, is that he's the only guy caught. Yeah. In any co-accused situation, you always got to be afraid uh, because you're going to take the full brunt. Mm. Uh, and uh, you would get the impression the U.S. probably plans to make an example out of this person. I, I would think so. Um, and uh, unfortunately, to the U.S. is much more punitive than we are in terms of custody and jail. So it's also not the ideal place to face these charges. Hmm. Any idea what sort of penalty he, he would be facing in all of this? It's, it's probably going to be a precedent-setting decision because we don't hear about these very much. Hmm. These are new crimes, cyber crimes and, and you know, invasion of privacy. And it's going to depend really on uh, what the Crown or the prosecutors are seeking at that time. How big a case is this in the United States and the well, fact that they've got a man from Canada? It's funny. I mean, um, I know, we know what Canadian news is. We know it's a big deal here. Uh, is it a big deal for them? I think so because they're proceeding with extradition which is unusual. Um, There's so many people charged cross-border. Not everybody is extradited to that jurisdiction, so it's important to them. Uh, The fact that they know who the others were and, you know, have obviously um, uh, joined the dots, uh, connected the dots and and traced these people back to Russia, is there any sort of diplomatic negotiation there at all? I mean, obviously there isn't an, an extradition uh, uh, situation here, but uh, d- d- does the U.S. use this for any ammo in any way? They can try. Um, whether it's successful or not is, is what it's going to come down to. Um, bottom line is they have one guy in custody, and he's their target now. He's the easy target. You always go after the easy people, and unfortunately that's him at this moment. Are there a lot of Baratovs out there, do you think, that are, you know, the mules for these other larger operations? It's it's a new type of crime that we're seeing, right? And uh, people do it not only for their own personal gain, uh, but for commercial profit. So these charges, they're going to be coming, they, they are becoming more common, and they will continue to be more common. Can Baratov just claim stupidity in all of this? Can he, or is he smart enough to know exactly what he was doing? 
it's unlikely that defense will work, and I'll tell you why. It's probably because they have enough evidence that uh, will prove uh, he knew what he was doing. Uh, even if he knew what he was doing, did he know the extent of the damage he was causing? Again, it, it, they probably are going to say he did, yeah. uh, based on the evidence. Uh, we don't know what the evidence is. Nobody knows what it is, really, except probably the U.S. authorities. They probably have everything. Uh, but you can be sure that if they're extraditing him, um, they're going to uh, say that he knew everything he was doing and was fully involved. Any idea how much money he would have made from all of this? Does any of that come out yet? Well, we heard a little bit of discussion of him getting a little kickback, right, for every hacking. Uh, the real money has probably been made else- elsewhere, and that's the unfortunate part. Uh, the real people that were probably profiting off of this um, are nowhere to be found. So in the end, you get the little guy, you don't get the big guy. What's the advantage of prosecuting something like this? I mean, is, 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 in the end, is this going to be, I mean, obviously this guy's going away. Uh, it certainly looks that way. Um, that being said, is, is that justice served? The advantage is you use this person to set an example for the rest, yeah. unfortunately. And that's what's a little troubling for him is that he's going to be used as an example. It may not recover the money. It may not recover the data that was ever lost. Um, but it will send a message to anybody else uh, trying to implicate themselves. Uh, the fact that he is a Canadian living, you know, was living here in Ancaster, uh, what, what factor does that play in any of this? Uh, does it have something to d- say about... Uh, cross-border security, cybersecurity, this sort of thing, where perhaps it all worked. We caught him. Right. So the fact that he's a Canadian um, may help him. I mean, there are some processes that might allow him to come back here, perhaps, and serve his sentence. That would be ideal. Um, at least he's on uh, foreign soil. Um, um, but but uh, who knows? It'll ultimately, ultimately depend on how the case unfolds. Uh, could he have been charged here and that somehow avoided him having to face what he does or will in the United States? Yes, 100%, but it's likely the U.S. authorities want to take the investigation and take the lead of the investigation. The U.S. authorities could have easily uh, put a, a binder of information on the RCMP's desk and said, hey, here, um, deal with this guy. But, but for whatever reason, they want to uh, seize control of the investigation. Really? So if that would have been the case and then the RCMP do the exact same thing and, and, and charge him, uh, this would have been a whole different uh, ballgame for Baratov, wouldn't it have? Right. You wouldn't need the extradition. Uh, you wouldn't, uh, we wouldn't even be talking about this now. Um, you still would have had a bail hearing, but uh, it's likely the FBI uh, has all the data and did the investigation. Right. And that's probably why it's going to stay in U.S. jurisdiction. So in other words, they've got all the manpower into it. They're not just going to hand it to somebody else to take the credit for it. I, they want I, their man, in other, way, in other words. That's what I think. Uh, Will, do you think there is much of a chance, say he does get convicted down there, uh, that he will get to serve his time in Canada? What's that process? Does he have to be down there a certain period of time before he can do that? So that process will begin, assuming there's a conviction, and, and it will depend on the amount of time. And then there's going to be a whole bunch of uh, applications involved at that point as well. Uh, do you think uh, that, well, I guess we won't know this information until the trial, but uh, would there be appeals on this no matter what? So you can appeal to the end of time, and it comes down to resources, and it comes down to how much you want to invest in that process. And that's why he's consented to the extradition, because it's a waste of money and time. And this has been a uh, a prudent decision, I think. 
Uh, what would something like this cost? I mean, uh, you talking about bringing in U.S. lawyers. I mean, he's already been in jail since March. It, obviously, a, a big feat ahead of him. What would the cost be? Well, and that's the scary part. You can spend forever, right? And he's got to be careful where he deploys resources. And that's why this is a tactical decision. Uh, he fought the bail hearing, lost. He fought the appeal, uh, lost. You, he could have fought the extradition. Why waste uh, resources that are limited, likely, on battles you're not going to win. Fact that they are coming for him, not handing it to the RCMP. Fact that he was not um, uh, released on bail. Um, it, it would look pretty grim for this guy, wouldn't it? it, it the, there's obvious strength in the U.S. authorities' case, that's clear, based on how things have unfolded so far. What does this do? I mean, like, there must be other Baratobs out there. This must be a, like, is this the tip of the iceberg, do you think? Well, it's a lock and key type argument, right? They, they get a bigger key, and then the other guys get a bigger lock. And hmm. that's what happens. And it's back and forth until somebody, somebody cracks. Uh, are there a lot of young people, do you think, in North America who are making money this way? Probably not in North America, um, and the reason is it's safer to do it elsewhere. Yeah. But what they do do, I'll tell you, is they, they may reside here, but they camouflage themselves online to appear to be in other jurisdictions. Why, how would, and again, I guess we won't know this till trial, but how would a Karim Baratov have become involved in all of this? How would it get to this point? And that's the big question everyone's looking for. Nobody knows except him. Hmm. Uh, will all of that come out? Mm, it's hard to say. He may not testify in his own defense, yeah. uh, so we may never know. That's the truth. So he has pleaded not guilty to these, or will he? Has he formally been charged? I guess that's what all happens when he gets down there, and then he will have to enter a plea, will he not? Correct. So he'll enter a plea once he's in that jury, once the, pr- the process has actually started. So we all have to remember here, uh, nothing's actually begun with the criminal charges. No. And, um, and that's run, run through that with us, Jordan. So, uh, so now he has decided he's going to uh, forget about uh, fighting the extradition. So what process does he have to go through now? So the, the subsequent process is going to be getting him into the, the appropriate jurisdiction, uh, reading in the allegations in the U.S., and then he'll enter his plea. And then there'll be a full discovery process in the U.S., where all the information, all the disclosure, all the leads are disclosed to his U.S. lawyers, and they will then make an informed decision as to how to proceed. And his decision on how to proceed is really going to depend on the quantity and quality of the evidence they have. So they could decide to take this to trial, or they could, I mean, it's all—it's possible he could just plead guilty, could he? That is possible. If his, if his lawyers are, are able to hammer out a good deal um, that gives him... Uh, quality of life still, um, why not? If, in fact, that's what the evidence shows. Is that the best time for that opportunity? Is that the best time to get, as you put it, the best deal? So, yeah, he will, you'll, the accused will always derive a benefit from admitting what happened. Uh, the sooner that's done and the less money you save the taxpayer in the criminal justice system, the more of a benefit you derive. Uh, do you think, considering they, them wanting to use him as an example in this case, that it will be of much value to him? Um, I mean, could you see it get cut from, say, a 20-year penalty to a 10? I mean, would this be significant? The problem is these are, these are new allegations. Right. These are new areas in the law, right? So it's not like we can open a textbook and look at the last Yahoo hacker 
what he got, what you would typically do in the law. You'd open the book up, say, okay, uh, what did this person got who's similar to this, this set of facts? That's the issue here. So that's all going to be discussed between the prosecutor and his lawyer. And I'm sure the prosecutors are going to want to make sure they get it right, too. They don't want to give too lenient of a sentence either. If the sentence is too lenient, there's no deterrence, and that's the problem. That being said, because this is relatively unchartered territory, I mean, would that be, could Baratov use that in his defense? Right. Uh, but, but it's scary, too, because you then, it forces you to go all the way. Because right. then now you need a judge to make the decision for you. So it can sometimes force you to, to run the trial, to take the case to the end, uh, because nobody really knows what to do and nobody, wa- and nobody wants to commit to anything. They leave it up to the judge. Would there be any damning or, or significant information that Baratov could give officials to help them with the investigation, uh, it, it, w- the other three that have re- fled back to Russia? Is, there some, is, this some, is this a piece to a much bigger puzzle? Well, put yourself, let's put ourselves in his position, right? We don't know who these other parties are. We don't know what kind of people they are, um, who they're connected with. And I'm sure that's running through his head. Right. I mean, uh, it, it, is he going to benefit at all implicating other people? If he even knows who they are, maybe he doesn't. Um, is anybody in Russia concerned about this? Are, are they? Do they care, or do they just think, oh, you know, another hole in the net we have to sew up? Or is this? Could this be incriminating for them? Could could this could this be a key to other things? Well, well it ties into this whole U.S. election. Exactly. Uh, that's, that's the parallel I'm drawing here. I right. mean, that's, so, it's the whole thing is about Russian spying, and this plays right into all of that. It, it ties into that. So they may not be concerned about this particular you know, allegation, but it gets into this broader uh, topic of uh, U.S. election and politics and, and involvement uh, by foreign uh, governments. Um, uh, his, uh, Baratop's lawyer has said that he, as you mentioned, he's getting bored behind bars. He's been there since March and doesn't want his client to spend more time than necessary in custody if it looks like he could be exonerated or spared in, uh, incarceration in the United States. Does that sound overly optimistic or is it just positioning? Well, we, we have to look at it like, like this. He's been denied bail twice for some reason, Okay. If there was no evidence, it's likely he would have been released. So there must be something. Um, whether it's enough that he'll do life in prison is another question, but there must be something. And that's why he's being extradited. Uh, obviously, uh, it, it certainly looks at this point uh, that the decision to withhold bail was a, was a good one. Would you say that? Would that be correct? Well, we don't know what would have happened, right? So he may have got out on bail and could have still consented to the extradition. Right. The problem is, and we've talked, this, talked about this, nobody wants to be the one responsible for, for letting him get away. Right. And that's, unfortunately, when you're in these positions, uh, sometimes what can work against you if you're the accused person. So timeline now, Jordan, what happens? Uh, how does this all space out? How does this all play out in the next few months? So he'll be brought to the States case will start, and then there'll be a lengthy, I'm sure, process in the States, depending on whether he owns up to it or not, and if there's a plea. If there's a plea, it'll certainly uh, speed things along, but really now it's going to be out of all of our hands and uh, between him and the U.S. authorities. So he's got a lot of time to wait in jail yet before all this gets rolling. I, I, I think so, easily um, a, 
couple years. Uh, jurisdiction, how, how big a factor is that? Does it play into this? Well, the, the extradition hearing is to get jurisdiction for the uh, U.S. authorities to prosecute. So there is jurisdiction, and that's why they're proceeding with an extradition hearing. By consenting to it, he's saying, yes, I agree to be tried in the U.S. All right, Jordan Donick has been with us, criminal lawyer, Donick Law, alleged Yahoo hacker, Kareem Baratop, heading to the U.S. after opting to bypass his extradition hearing. He will now go to the U.S. Uh, to face the charges. Jordan, as always, thanks for the time. Much appreciated. My pleasure. Thank you. You're listening to The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on AM 900 CHML. We uh, remember that, uh, of course, over the winter, uh, terrible stories of people uh, crawling across fields and um, just south of of Manitoba trying to get into uh, Manitoba through holes in the fence and, and seeking asylum. Uh, and how people would risk uh, life and limb to, to cross in the middle of winter. And, of course, many predicted in the summer that this would turn into uh, a flood, and that is what Quebec is being faced with uh, now. We, we talked a couple of weeks ago about uh, the Olympic Stadium being opened up for a temporary uh, housing for people crossing in from the United States into Canada who fear being deported from the United States. A majority of these, this time, uh, Haitians who came here, uh, sorry, came to North America, some are in Canada, and Canada, by the way, uh, has uh, rescinded this ban, so allowing them to stay. But after the earthquakes of 2010, uh, of course, took in lots. Uh, The problem with uh, the United States is their deal expires in January, so many think they will be deported. So uh, with the prime minister uh, holding up his arms and welcoming everybody, but not really giving them an accurate picture of what the situation was like, um, excuse me, we immediately saw uh, hundreds of people coming across borders. Uh, In the first week of August, almost 1,800 people crossed the Canada-U.S. border uh, to claim refugee status, uh, to which Quebec Premier Philip Couillard says, we can't take people's hope away. But we must be present. But people must be presented with a real picture of the situation, especially people who are still in the United States and may be tempted to do the same thing. Uh, he goes on to say, arriving in an army camp isn't exactly a comfortable experience. As I mentioned, a lot of these new arrivals are people who are fear uh, fearful of being deported back to Haiti. Uh, Canada already lifted its own stay on uh, deportations uh, to Haiti last year. Uh, Couillard says he is ready to go to the media to set the the record straight. And I guess my question is, why did the message or how did the message get confused uh, in the first place? And again, pointing to our prime minister, who, of course, will take advantage of a selfie or a photo op to welcome the world, but then makes the premier uh, uh, and the premiers do all the heavy lifting as far as setting the record straight. Uh, and an example uh, with Quebec alone, uh, out of the 800, I believe that were, I'm sorry, out of the 200 refugee applica- applications from Haitian nationals uh, last year, uh, 207 of them were accepted. So just over half get to stay. So out of all of those that arrive, uh, certainly last year, uh, half were allowed to stay and half were not. So again, as these situations become overwhelming, what are those cities, towns, municipalities, provinces 
who uh, are affected by this, how do they cope? And is it time to change the law so it's easier for people to cross at the real border instead of coming through a hole in the fence? Uh, let's bring in Giddy Maman, senior partner, founder, Maman Sandaluk Kingwell, LLP. He is an Im- immigration lawyer and is with us now. Hello, Giddy. Thanks very much for taking the time to join us. We greatly appreciate this. Well, thank you for having me. Uh, we've talked about this many times. You predicted way back in the winter that we would see the surge that uh, we are seeing now. Uh, do asylum seekers have an accurate picture of what lies ahead for them if they decide to make uh, the trek to Canada? Are we feeding them something that, that, that isn't quite the truth? Uh, I, I think they are um, definitely... Uh, not aware of what's really going on. First of all, you have to understand that back in January, the, the Prime Minister issued a remarkable tweet saying that, uh, you know, to those fleeing persecution, that Canadians will welcome you regardless of your faith. Uh, so that seemed to throw the door open for anybody who wants to come to Canada who has a bad lot in life. But the reality is that, uh, that Justin Trudeau does not get to decide who's a refugee and who isn't. That role belongs to the Immigration and Refugee Board, and they have a very strict definition of who is a convention refugee. And it does not include people who have fled an earthquake. Now, you have said that uh, half of the people last year got to stay, but that's a, this is a completely different cohort. It's a completely different sample. The people who came to Canada and who were successful were able to somehow connect their claim to the 1951 convention. These people here are coming from the United States. Many of them have been in the States for many years, and many of them have not made refugee claims in the United States. So that is going to weigh very, very heavily against them. So I predict that far less than half of this particular cohort will ultimately succeed in making convention refugee claims and ultimately will face a removal order from Canada. Uh, what are your thoughts on what uh, the Quebec Premier had to say uh, and that he said it was, you know, his job, he was ready to go to the media to set the record straight. Is that up to him or should the Prime Minister have done that? Well, immigration really is a federal responsibility. So it's kind of strange to see uh, a Prime Minister uh, opening the welcome mat to unlimited numbers of uh, potential refugees to Canada. What's What's more strange is uh, is expecting provincial premiers to deliver the bad news that maybe that was being overly generous and not quite accurate. I think uh, I think our prime minister is the one who should stand up and say, "Look, you know, we're welcoming people, but that doesn't mean that everybody out there who is uh, you know who has a, a terrible lot in life qualifies for our admission standards. It, it would be impossible, in fact, inconceivable that we could take on all." comers, because on a planet of seven or eight billion people, just imagine how many billions would want to take advantage of that generous offer. So if you're the prime minister, what do you do now that the cat is out of the bag? Well, there's no question that this cannot continue. This is going to get much, much worse before it gets, uh, you know, under control. Uh, The media doesn't want to talk about, you know, the C word, the crisis word, but you have to acknowledge that the Army, the Canadian Armed Forces, are already involved in this little uh, development. So when you're calling out the Army on an immigration matter, you know that the situation is at or near a crisis point. And we haven't even started dipping into the Mexican population 
in the United States. Once they start getting nervous about their futures, you can imagine what those numbers are going to look like in Canada. So there has been discussion, I think you mentioned it, about cancelling the safe third country agreement. But that's not going to stem the flow. It's only going to increase the flow. You're just going to, you're just going to be able to... Uh, your, your, refugees are now, or refugee claimants are now going to be eligible to make a claim not only at a hole in the fence, but also uh, on our highways leading to proper points uh, of entry. So that's going to increase phenomenally the numbers of, of people coming to Canada. So that's not the solution either. Uh, Giddy, you bring up a valid point, and we've talked about this before, and I've had other experts on who disagree with you. Lots will say that that is the core of this issue, is the safe third-party uh, agreement, which, of course, uh, through the the normal border gates, they would be turned away and encourages them to to uh, go through a hole in the fence. So, uh, why why are you against removing the third the third country agreement? And again, just simply because now they'll all be lined up at the border? Well, you have to understand what the safe third country agreement does. Most people who, who uh, are involved in this uh, business will understand exactly its effect. The safe third country agreement prevents people from making two refugee claims, one in Canada mm-hmm. and one in the United States. So now when you remove that agreement and you cancel that agreement, you are taking away a restriction. That means you now can make a refugee claim in Canada, and you can now make a refugee claim in the United States. So what, no, some would say, what's wrong with that, Giddy? Why not? What, so what's the problem? Oh, there, there's no problem uh, if you are uh, a person who believes in unlimited um, access to Canada for refugees. So now that means all 12 million people who are without status in the United States mm. can now go to the port of entry at the Peace Bridge, Rainbow Bridge, Windsor, all of those bridges, and make an asylum claim. Right, Be- right now, they're not allowed to do that. That's why they, they circumvent the agreement by going through a hole in the fence. But now, without the agreement, you can go through the hole in the fence, right. and now you can go through the border. Anyone right. who disagrees with me on this is simply wrong. That is the way this agreement works. So, uh, and obviously this is to stop asylum shoppers, people from coming and picking the best deal. So what's the answer if it's not the elimination of the safe third party agreement, country agreement? Uh, the answer is a very difficult one. I, I have the answer, but it's not, uh, it's not going to make anybody happy. Uh, in 1951, Canada signed a convention which said that anyone who lands on our shores is eligible to have a refugee claim determined. And if you determine that they meet the definition, you are required to offer them permanent residency. There is no limit to that convention. That means if we receive one person or a thousand or a million or a hundred million, theoretically we have to process all of those claims right through the determination. Now that may have been okay in 1951 when international travel was difficult, when we were very isolated from conflict areas like Europe, uh, Africa, South America, but now it's a whole different deal. Hmm. Uh, I'm certainly not using, you know, the same tools today that one might have used in 1951. The convention has to be revisited. We either have to be able to impose numerical limits, 
or we have to get out of the agreement. And because Canada is the favored child in the uh, in the refugee uh, business internationally, we are the ones who set the examples for everyone else. For us to withdraw from the 1951 convention, or for us to limit the application of the convention to a certain numerical number is going to be um, shocking internationally. It's going to have tremendous repercussions. But I think Canada needs to take the initiative here um, because you can see uh, countries in Europe who are being flooded by Mm -hmm. immigrants, uh, numbers that they cannot possibly deal with, numbers that are destabilizing, numbers that are causing real social upheaval, they cannot defend themselves because they too signed the agreement, which has no numerical limits. So something has to be done. Maybe Canada should lead the discussion. Uh, How do you have that discussion without making it appear that you're closing the door? How do you, and I mean, you know, a lot of people who are tuning in right now, Giddy, may not realize that this is what you do for a living. You bring in, in hundreds of people every year. Uh, through the proper channels. So how, how will that go with our, you know, this facade that we have that, uh, no, we take everybody? Well, as for me, just because you raise it, you're, you're absolutely right. For, for me, this is the biggest cash cow in a 30-year uh, uh, career. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I should be throwing a party every week for the numbers that are heading towards our office. But I'm also, you know, I also wear a different hat besides being the senior partner of this law firm. I wear the hat of a Canadian citizen and have to wonder, you know, how much is our society uh, able to handle? And even if we were to increase our intake, double it, triple it, quadruple it, uh, is, is that what we want? Or do we want a system where we select the refugees, we select the region, we select the numbers, we select where they settle in Canada, when they arrive, and how they arrive. Right now, as far as I'm concerned, we don't have an immigration policy because the door is wide open. We have no control over who came in. We didn't ask for Haitians to come in. We didn't necessarily want Haitians, but we got Haitians. And we didn't specify the numbers. They specified the numbers for us. That is no longer an immigration system. That is practically chaos. It is not a system that is being managed by the federal government. And the idea that the, you know, the prime minister very carefully said, we can handle the numbers. Of course we can handle the numbers. We're a rich country. But what we're supposed to say is these, these are the refugees that we have selected. This is the budget that we have set aside. And these are the terms under which they will settle in Canada. Uh, but what we're doing now is throwing them in, in stadiums and in churches, and we're still looking for places uh, to house them. And these are not necessarily in terms of quality of refugees, that is, people who need our help the most. These are not necessarily those who need mm-hmm. our help the most. Those people are sitting in refugee camps all over the world who have been waiting years and years and years for some country to come and tap them on the shoulder and invite them to be part of our society. We're not And that's that. the other thing that everybody's forgetting in all of this is that you know you look at all of these poor people coming into Quebec and, and whatever and you think oh my goodness they're from uh, you, you know Haiti and, and the earthquake and such but you know we're forgetting the other ones that are standing in line that are in refugee camps right now. That's right. By I the mean, way, uh, that's you're exactly right. And by the way those are our clients too. We have clients whose families have gone together to form a group 
to bring these refugees in, and they've paid a lawyer, they've done all of the waiting that they're supposed to do, filled out all the forms, and then they turn on the TV and see somebody else who is in far less um, uh, uh, difficult of, uh, uh, of a situation getting in immediately and having somebody carry their luggage across the border for them. And they're wondering, why am I bothering paying a lawyer? Why am I bothering to wait years? Why don't I just circumvent the whole situation, let them get to the United States, and then they just walk across anywhere in the border? Does the Prime Minister need to clarify his comments? Does he need to echo what uh, Philip Couillard said? Well, (laughs) he needs to do a lot more than that. Uh, Of course he has to clarify the situation, but but you can clarify it all you want. It is not going to change the dynamic. Right now... Haitians in the United States believe they're going home. They believe that that is a 90-95% certainty. So if the Prime Minister were to get on TV and say, look, you only have a 50% chance of succeeding in your attempt to settle in Canada, what would I say? I'd say, well, 50% chance is better than 5% chance of staying in the United States. Hmm. So I have a 10%, a 10 times better chance of establishing myself in a Western, a rich Western country if I go to Canada. Mm-hmm. So that statement is not going to change anything in terms of the flow. Hmm. Uh, what about Donald Trump and all of this? Obviously, Canada already in, uh, lifted its own stay on, deport, uh, on deportations to Haiti last year. Uh, does Donald Trump need to revisit this, or is this not, not even on his radar? Uh, uh, you know, people criticize Donald Trump for a lot of things. But I think you have to be very careful if you think that he's a stupid person. He is not. He's been very, very quiet about this. Uh, he knows exactly what's going on. Canada has basically, is basically quietly footing the bill for his election promise to deport thousands, millions of people that he does not want in the United States. It's costing him nothing. So he's going to remain silent. Uh, out of uh, concern that he may, you know, sort of wake up the Canadian public by issuing some sort of statement and, you know, antagonizing us into action. Right now we have a prime minister who's thrown out the red carpet. Uh, They're leaving the United States. Donald Trump could not be happier because otherwise he would have to dig into the U.S. Treasury to get rid of these people. And I tell you, that forcibly removing people from a country is, is a dangerous business. People get violent. They run away. Uh, they resist. It, it, it causes tremendous trauma, not only to the family, to their uh, American or Canadian spouses, to the neighbors who witness this sort of thing, to the community, uh, but also to the, uh, to the officers who have to uh, carry out a very, very difficult and heart-wrenching um, uh, you know, exercise. So it can't possibly be working out better for Donald Trump on this. So really quickly, between now and January, when all these visas expire, where is this going? Well, you know, we've, you and I have been talking about it for months now. Those numbers are going to continue to climb. And the only question is, how much of a stomach does Justin Trudeau have for this before he has to admit that he was wrong in making Canada look like we have uh, an open door for everyone on the planet, uh, and he's going to have to reverse himself somehow. The only question 
is, I think you can answer it as, as well as I can, when is he going to shut the door and do something that is a very unpleasant thing to do. Giddy Maman has been with us, senior partner, founder of Maman Sandaluk Kingwell LLP, an immigration lawyer. Giddy, thanks for the time as always. Much appreciated. My pleasure. Thank you. Have a great day. The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on AM 900 CHML.